Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about the case against Roth conversions. Uh, we're excited. There is a white paper that was published earlier this year that we're going to digest and talk about uh, and kind of identi- talk about where we agree, where we disagree, and then kind of what wisdom can our listeners, oil and gas retirees or professionals, glean from this piece of research and how, how they think about Roth conversions. But before we get into it, I, I think it's important we remind everybody that uh, if you're if you're not watching our videos, you're missing out. Justin and I are both wearing black vests today, and the only way you would know that if you were listening, you were uh, watching the videos. And a lot of people may not even know, but we record these and put put these out to your favorite podcast platform. But we also uh, have them on YouTube. So if if you like the verbal, you could see Justin and I go back and forth on there. But that's that's the quick plug. We've also done a couple other pieces on YouTube. We've done some shorter videos that look at different case studies and different topics. I'm going to make a promise that we're going to prioritize that more. I think there's a huge need for just five or 10 minute videos digesting some of the ideas that we talk through. So hopefully there's already some up on our YouTube page. Go check them out. Hopefully we'll have some more to come in the in the months months ahead. Yeah. I, and I think that's good. Speaking into new existence. Now, you know, now people are going to be waiting for it, so we have to make it happen. So let's get into this piece uh, and kind of talk about the case against Roth conversions. But before we do that, I think it's worth reorienting everyone and talking about why Roth conversions and, okay, like, what is our North Star? Why do we even think about Roth conversions? And, and kind of making sure that we all have the right framework as we're going into this research paper and unpacking it, kind of remembering what what the goal is. because. I mean, I agree. Like there's a lot, like it's kind of a buzzword right now. It's a, it's a cool new trick. It's, you know, you see more articles about it, people talking about it. So it's kind of the new idea or it's not, not a new idea, but I feel like it recently it's really grown in popularity. So let's kind of talk about, take a step back and talk about what is the North star and that financial planning and kind of Roth conversion seek to solve for. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you've read some of our articles, you've listened to some of our podcasts, you probably know that we are very pro Roth conversion where when it makes sense. Uh, we have a lot of different content. It's it's in our white papers too. Uh, Roth conversions are, are one of the better opportunities, one of the bigger opportunities to lower your future tax bill for the demographic that we work with. And so, I mean, yeah, you might be a little bit surprised to hear us do a podcast on a white paper that essentially challenges the entire idea of Roth conversions. Uh, but that's that's what we want to do. So backing up um, first, what is a Roth conversion? Uh, that's where you take an amount. It could be a small amount, could be a partial amount, could be could be your entire amount that is in your pre-tax 401k or IRA. And you are taking that pre-tax money, putting it into a Roth IRA or Roth 401k. You can do conversions within a 401k plan sometimes as well. Now let's back up. What is uh, where does Roth conversions fit into financial planning? So the CFP board says that there's five areas of financial planning. Uh, those five are estate planning, insurance or risk management, uh, and then we have tax planning, investments, and retirement income. So of those five areas, we're talking about tax planning. I always like to mention those five. 
because they all inter they they they're interconnected with each other. You cannot make a Roth conversion without thinking through estate planning, without thinking through retirement income, and without thinking through your portfolio. So they touch on all of them, but we're we're going to focus in on tax planning today. And Roth conversions, I would argue, are are one of the biggest sub items under tax planning. If you're retiring from a large oil and gas company, you need to know. Should you do a conversion? How much should you convert and why? When is it going to pay off? Um, And is it going to pay off in your lifetime or is it more for your beneficiaries? You need to know answers to all those questions. So, you know, with tax planning, Jared, what would you say is our North Star? What, what, What is the guiding principle that we think about? Yeah, the guiding principle really is thinking about your lifetime tax rate, right? And optimizing that. Right. So instead of thinking about year to year strategies, which do, in fact, matter, taking a step back and thinking about the seasons of your life and the potential income tax consequences related to that. Right. And one of the reasons Roth conversions oftentimes can slot in really nicely into an optimal tax strategy is post employment income pre RMDs and Social Security. There's a lot of years where there's no income tax where you don't have any employment income. Right. And so, you know, you go from your highest earning years to pretty much low to no income. So filling up those marginal tax brackets and and realizing income in those years and taking advantage of those low income tax bracket years could potentially be a great opportunity. So at a high level, that's how we think about, you know, what our North Star is, is really optimizing your lifetime tax rate. Right. And Roth conversions being a tool to do that. I think I mentioned in a previous podcast that it is a prerequisite, in my opinion. If if you're going to hire an advisor to help you, that advisor should be asking to see last year's tax return. Uh, that really is like an X-ray. It's it's kind of the the central part of your financial life, and it's hard to figure out what your optimal lifetime tax rate is without looking at that. So, Jared, that's 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 perfectly put. What we're trying to do is find your optimal lifetime tax rate. Now, thinking about Roth conversions, they are very popular now. So a lot of folks are talking about them and thinking about doing Roth conversions. I would kind of compare it to uh, if you're a big football fan and and you're into analytics. I'm, I'm a huge college football fan. I talk about Kansas State a lot. But there's this there's this big movement of the past decade of of trying to bring data and analytics into football decisions. And a huge, the most popular one is fourth down conversions. So you don't get the first down. It's fourth and five or fourth and 10, fourth and one, whatever it may be. Should you punt or should you go for it? Now, to be as brief as possible, uh, the data and analytics say that you should go for it on fourth down far more than most teams go for it, than most coaches choose to go for it today. Uh, so essentially, you know, that football analogy is that a lot of coaches are, are leaving some money on the table and and they need to go for it more. But if we if we think about Roth conversions, our, our North Star is not let's convert as much money as possible because Roths are very compelling. Roths are exciting. They're attractive. The idea of tax free growth is so compelling. And the idea of going forward and getting a first down on fourth down, also very compelling. But it's important to remember your North Star. The North Star in that football analogy is not to go for every fourth down. Well, the North Star is to make the decision that puts you in the highest probability to win the game. So if it's fourth and 18, you're up by two touchdowns late in the fourth quarter and you're on your own 15-yard line, well, you're, you're making a decision to put you in the best chances to win the game. You should probably punt. Because the North Star is not go for it on every fourth down, even though that's become the popular 
thought. The North Star is do what it takes to win. And we want to take that same thought with Roth conversions. Our North Star is not getting the most tax-free money possible. Because if you had to pay a 45% tax rate on a ton of your assets and that got all of them to grow tax-free between federal and state income tax, depending on what state you live in, well, yes, you would have a lot of tax-free assets and that would be exciting to have all of those tax-free assets, but you would have paid a horrible tax bill to get there. And there's almost no way that that optimized your lifetime tax rate. And so uh, to put a negative spin on it, it's possible to overdo Roth conversions. It's possible to do Roth conversions that increase your lifetime tax rate. And we, we want to avoid that. We want to instead think, what is the right amount? Or are there, are there times where you should not do any Roth conversions? Because the goal is not getting the most tax-free money growing possible. That's not the goal. The goal is the lowest lifetime tax rate, period. That's what we're trying to think through here. Yeah, definitely. And now, now that you've kind of painted that context and we've defined the goal line, let's let's go ahead and jump into the paper. So we'll link to this in the show notes, but the paper's by Edward McQuarrie, and I'm sure I botched his last name, so my my apologies, Edward. The paper is called When and for Whom Are Roth Conversions Most Beneficial? A new set of guidelines, cautions, and caveats. So, Justin, you want to provide a brief kind of synopsis of the paper and then we can kind of talk about where we agree, where we disagree, and just kind of begin riffing back and forth. That sounds great. Edward, if you happen to listen to this podcast, really enjoyed your paper. Uh, and for all of our listeners, this is about a 40-page white paper, um, and but a, there's a lot of charts and graphs in here, so it reads a lot quicker than that. I'm going to just go bullet point by bullet point, Jared, and, and we can provide some color back and forth. So we're trying to summarize as quickly as possible, what did this white paper say? And I think let's let's start here. The vast majority of Americans are not going to have a problem with RMDs producing high tax rates. So what's an RMD? Required minimum distribution starts at age 72. You have to take a small portion out of your pre-tax assets every year. And Edward is saying in this white paper that the vast majority of Americans are not going to have RMDs that push them into high tax brackets. There really does need to be a tax rate advantage. Jared, I think we would call this tax rate arbitrage. And I, I think Michael Kitsis talks about that a lot. So in other words, if you can do a conversion with a 0% tax rate, um, and that means your standard deduction. So if you can convert 25000 a year at a 0% tax rate and have assets to live off of so that you're not producing other income, that's an obvious win. And so his white paper really does go into the fact that there's a big difference between doing a Roth conversion where there's a huge tax rate arbitrage opportunity. So maybe you convert at 0% and 10% and 12% when your future RMD tax rate is going to be 22, 24, 32%. That's a big opportunity, but there's not necessarily some incredible opportunity if you're converting at 22% and you're going to pay 22% when you hit RMD age. Yeah. And one caveat I'll add to kind of what you said, tax rate arbitrage based on rates today, right? So one of the things that he talks about in the paper that we totally agree with is that it's really nebulous kind of what future tax rates are going to be, right? We have no idea. And and that's the reality of things. So so he when he talks about this tax arbitrage idea, it's rates today uh, versus those same rates in the future, right? Because there is a little bit of like there's a lack of clarity there and no one really has any idea. So all that we know are, are where tax rates are today. So that's an important kind of caveat. There's no assumption about 
tax rates going up. And if rates do go up, you know, Roth conversions could be more compelling, but you have no control or knowledge beforehand over that. Um, or rates going down could could make Roth conversions less less advantageous. Um, so really, you know, tax arbitrage today based on ra- these rates continuing into the future, which it's not going to be perfect. Hindsight will be 2020, but that's the best we have today. Great point. Reminder, we are in this section of the podcast, we are reviewing what did the white paper say. In the next section, we will tell you what we agree with and what we don't disagree with. But that was a really key part of this white paper. Uh, When you read this, the author's making it pretty clear that you really shouldn't go into Roth conversions with the assumption that tax rates are just going to go way up in the future. And we will talk more in detail about whether we agree, disagree, and exactly what that could look like coming up. But that was a big point. Let's see, another thing that I wanted to bring up, conversions have to be compared assuming the same assets and the same growth rates are invested in this in all different types of accounts. So what do I mean there? The author, Edward, is saying that you cannot justify a conversion by saying that, well, in the pre-tax IRA, we're going to put a bunch of low return bonds. And then in the Roth, we're going to put high growth stocks. He's saying there needs to be a comparison. That's a little bit more apples to apples. And uh, again, that's what the white paper is saying. We'll go into whether we agree or disagree with that. Uh, what else sh- should we should we cover here, Jared? Yeah, I think at a high level, right? This what this paper is saying. It's taking average, right? So it's taking the you know using some average numbers for for the average person to kind of come up. Okay, does do Roth conversions make sense from a tax arbitrage perspective? Basically, paying a really low rate. And and his you know too long don't read is you know. It usually there's not a big tax arbitrage because the average person doesn't have enough in pre-tax assets to really push them up into a high bracket. And then so if the tax arbitrage opportunity is taken away, what really is the value value of Roth conversions? It's tax-free growth. But the problem is you're signing yourself up for a tax bill today. And that tax bill you're paying voluntary right, tax bill. Voluntary tax bill is money that cannot compound. Right. So for the tax free growth to offset the, you know, taking money out of the market for the associated tax liability, Roth conversions, you know, in his analysis, really become valuable only after a really extended time horizon. And there's a couple of charts that that do a good job talking about the the various break even point. But it's, you know, it's in the 20 plus year period. Right. So that's that's a long time to potentially recoup your money if there is no tax arbitrage. Yes, you just hit on a few things that I want to kind of highlight. So the paper talks about a couple quick points. Jared, you mentioned this. Conversions have to account for the missed compound interest that would have happened in the dollars that went out of your life because of the tax bill. So if you voluntarily sign up for a $50,000 tax bill, well, to really understand whether that conversion was a good deal or not, you have to model out what would have happened had you kept that $50,000 instead of paying taxes on your conversion and had you invested that $50,000 in the years to come. So that's a key point. And also, I think you just mentioned a time frame that's pretty important to remember. So this white paper really did a lot of different studies and, and kind of spreadsheets modeling out what can happen over time. And The author makes a pretty strong case that you're not going to see a big payoff until you are, in many cases, age 90 plus. Now, Jared, I think we've kind of painted the picture that the author is uh, super against Roth conversions and and does not like them. To be fair um, to the author in in this white paper, 
It is clearly stated that if given enough time, most Roth conversions do make sense. If given enough time, it makes sense. And he also does a great job. I think this was maybe page 15, but he maps out if you're able to take advantage of the 0% tax bracket. So let's be specific here. He's saying if you have non-retirement assets that you can live off of during the years that you're doing Roth conversions, then it can be really powerful. And both the break-even date is much, much sooner. So you don't have to wait until age 90 for it to be a good deal. The break-even date's far sooner if, if that's the case. And the um, um, positive benefit to your net worth uh, long-term is much greater as well. And so I think that does a pretty good job. Anything else we need to cover on what does this white paper say? No, that's right. And you said, you know, that he's, I, and I guess the only color I would add to what you said about him being against Roth conversions is against Roth conversions for the average American in light of average assets, right? So like, I think, you know, because with these large pre-tax uh, de deferred accounts, like the larger the balances get, the, the higher the future potential RMD is, right? And I think that, you know, based on the spirit of the paper, I think you would agree that the higher those tax deferred balances get, the more it may make sense, right? And we can get into kind of seeing, okay, is our target client, like or not like av the average that's being used in this paper. But yeah, I, I would say he's against it for the average person. But I, I actually think in light of, you know, some of the data, if we use some scenarios for target client, like he may side with us, I think. So that that's the only caveat I'd add is the spirit of it was attacking it, Roth being a good idea for everyone at all times, which which I think you and I would, ag would agree with. I think everybody's a little... Uh, trigger happy with doing Roth conversions. But this this has been this has been a great art article to help everybody kind of take a step back, especially people that don't have substantial retirement assets or or future RMD liabilities. We can share this image too, but Jared, that image that I sent directly to you from this white paper that, that maps out, how much money do you actually need in your IRA at age 72? And this is assuming you're in your mid 60s now. So how much do you need seven years from now in order to actually be not in the 32% tax bracket, but just the 24% bracket. And the number was over $4 million. So really incredible, you know, data here that, that just is kind of a warning shot to say, hey, a lot of you are not even going to face the 24% bracket with pre-tax assets. So when he when he's talking to the average American, you know, a lot of people don't realize that at age 72, are you going to have more than 4 million? Well, that's the only way you're even going to be in the 24% bracket. And that's not even a, one of the higher brackets. Yeah. And even above average, I remember seeing one of the uh, articles that led us to this initial piece of research said, you know, this was back in 2016, but the 90th percentile and qualified accounts had less than half a million dollars, right? The 90th percentile. So even above average, and we'll link we'll link to that uh, source in the show notes as well. But yeah, kind of you're exactly right. That's that's a substantial amount of assets. But you know, I don't know if you have anything else. But now I kind of want to jump into what do we agree with? What do we disagree with? Yeah, yeah, and and this is and this is one of the not necessarily things that I disagree with, but kind of talking about oil and gas, right? Like having this balance at age seventy two, right? That four million dollar number you gave was huge. Right, it, or it sounds huge, but if if an oil and gas retiree retires at sixty with three million dollars and they don't touch it and they have enough in taxable assets to live off of and, and investments were to do seven percent, that's a double, right? So at seventy two, you would have 
six million, right? Which is that's it. That's an astronomically large number. What what bracket does that get you into, right? Well, and that also, and this is a really key point that we're going to mention probably multiple times. What does that do? If you have $6 million in an IRA, you're signing yourself up for higher Medicare premiums all throughout your, your, the rest of your life as well. So not only are you triggering higher tax brackets, you're also triggering higher Medicare premiums. So we want to highlight that. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting too, because right to talk about, you know, now let's define, let's paint some color. Cause this will be the talking about who the average person is. So in this scenario, uh, the people used in this Rob and Sue retiring at age 65, right. And it's important to even start there, right? Because the horizon for like optimal Roth conversions is, is small, right? If, if they take social security at full retirement age, that's only really a two year window of no income tax, but for an oil and gas retiree, if they retire late fifties, early sixties and potentially delay social security, that period of time has increased, right? Like the, the number of years where you have low to no income tax creates a, a larger opportunity for smaller conversions year to year, right? And then two, what that's done is by by retiring earlier than said 65, you've created a longer time horizon for these tax-free assets to compound, right? And one of the things that even Edward agrees with is, you know, one of the best ways to have a Roth conversion pay off irrespective of a tax arbitrage is a long time horizon. That's right. And so I think, you know, if, if we're assessing what do we agree with, what do we disagree with here? I think the first place to start is, well, if, if most of the pool that we swim in is families that are retiring from, you know, one of the 10 largest oil and gas companies, that's just a completely different situation. So he mapped out how many people actually get to retirement with 4 million in an IRA and incredible, incredible analysis and data here. But uh, the vast majority of people, even if you're in a very high earning income tax bracket, do not get there. And that's because company matches are low. Very, very different. So if we're thinking about how much do you get in retirement and pre-tax assets and when can you retire, I think we had an entire podcast on this topic and in, in an article as well. But just a very different situation. If you're retiring from BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, Chevron, you're in a very, very different boat because most of what we see is two big changes. Well, your company made pension contributions and 401k matching contributions for decades, and those were five to 10 times higher than the average American. Uh, so average 401k matches about 3% with no pension. The white paper actually used 3% match as the example in this model. So we're talking about pension contributions, 401k contributions that are five or 10 times that amount. Probably not 10 times. I think the biggest we currently have seen is Western midstream having potential total match retirement contributions in the 21 to 25% range. We've seen some similar though, but that's about the highest we've seen. Long story short, a lot higher than a 3% match. And then age, Jared, you mentioned this, but I mean, it, it's extremely common to, to see families retire at 55 or 60 instead of 65, 67. Let's hit on what we agree with. Yeah, I mean, I so one of the things that he mentioned that I emphatically agree with is if you don't have enough, sur like these should be surplus funds is probably his point, right? Roth conversions don't make sense with non-surplus funds, right? Like if you like if you don't have enough to do these conversions and live off of pre-tax assets and you know continue to let Roth tax-free assets compound, it really doesn't make sense to do Roth conversions, and we would emphatically agree with that. Just in this framing of hey, these funds need to be surplus, kind of above and beyond what you need for 
providing for the next few years, right? And in the event that you may need to tap the Roth bucket, your time horizon gets compressed and the value of the compounding of the tax-free really, really doesn't make sense. So I definitely agree with with that sentiment. I think that's a good point. Uh, one other point that I agreed with, so this is going to be a controversial opinion. A lot of reason, a lot of the fuel for Roth conversions. And I've had, I mean, this is, I hear multiple times, even, even in the past couple of years, I've had uh, the question posed, should I convert all of my IRA or 401k? And that uh, the general answer is usually do not do all of it. Um, it. It You know, if we're trying to find optimal lifetime tax rate, you probably don't want to convert all of it up front. And one of the things that I agree with is the probability that taxes are higher in the future. I think it's really likely that we do see higher taxes. But, and this is a really, really big point, but the, the probability that we see higher taxes in middle-class incomes which according to our tax brackets, I would say 22, 24% are middle-class tax rates. They're not 10 and 12%, but they're also not in the 30s or 40s. So those tax rates go all the way up to 350,000 in income after the standard deduction. So when he says that, well, are there really going to be higher tax rates in the future? I think that's a good point. And I think that it's very possible we see higher tax rates in the highest levels of income, but Congress could easily raise taxes substantially, I mean, in a big, big way, and they could keep tax rates relatively low or similar to where they're at now without touching you know, taxes up to 150,000 single, 300,000 married. And quick point on that, I mean, Jared, how big of an IRA do you need to even produce 300,000 in taxable income? I mean, it has to be astronomical. It has to be really, really large to get there. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and you know, to kind of put a bow on things we agree with, right? The conclusion that for the average person, right, there's not really a lot of tax rate arbitrage to be had because your retirement tax rates aren't going to be nearly as high as you think. So it does, it doesn't make sense. And the benefit can often be overstated. Justin, anything else you agree with? Because I feel like, I mean, our, li- our list of not disagreements, but c- contextualizations related to how oil and gas is different. We, you know, we got a pretty long list of that, so I want to make sure we get to those. Do you have anything else? You know, we you feel like we haven't touched on that that we agree with related to this paper. I do want to agree with one more thing, and this is really just saying another. It's another way of saying what you already said, Jared. But it kind of needs to be excess funds, and let's let's be more specific with that. If you are going to convert assets to Roth, and then you're going to consume them and spend them twelve years later, there's a really good chance that it won't be that good of a deal. And so Roth conversions, they pay off in incredible ways over long periods of time. Now, if there is obvious tax rate arbitrage and you're converting at the 0%, 10%, 12% bracket, and you're going to be taxed at a way higher bracket, that's really a different scenario. And that can make sense in a lot of different ways. But generally speaking, you shouldn't be consuming or spending a lot of the funds that you converted very quickly. They should be in that Roth growing tax-free compounding for a long time. Yeah, totally agree. I guess, you know, where we disagree is the next step, but I would probably say where does, which is better, it's like, where does, you put this in the show notes, where does the stereotypical oil and gas retiree situation differ from this analysis? And we've already kind of touched on a couple of these, right? They usually have substantially more in pre-tax assets, right? Due to the aggressive matches and the long time horizon of 
a lot of our employees, it, you know, they have a substantial amount in pre-tax money, right? Naturally putting them in a really large bracket, right? And they usually, in most cases, a lot of them will retire early 60s. So that time horizon of opportunity for the Roths to compound and fewer low to no income years is greater, right? And so those two things right off the bat really kind of reframe this conversation and say, hey, wow, this we are a lot different. And I would say the other thing is there's there's some brokerage assets at play. A lot of the average Americans like will save in a 401k and the sub, a substantial portion or pretty much all of their investable retirement assets are in these qualified accounts, right? Because the contribution limits are 19.5 a year, um, which is a really large amount of money for the average American, right? So the really the only time you would be saving above and beyond that is if, you know, you had six-figure salaries easy, right? And had excess cash flow and a low enough cost of living to where you could save above and beyond the IRS limits for retirement plans. And in the case of a lot of our clients, the Woodlands cost of living plus reasonable compensation and no state income tax really allows for a lot of after-tax savings. I want to ask you a quick question on that. Uh, we, we've maybe covered this in some of our podcasts, but Jared, why is it so strategic to have some after-tax non-retirement um, funds in the first three, five years of retirement? And I would say flexibility, right? And flexibility for, right? If you retire before 59 and a half, uh, there could be potential, potential penalties, right? Like if you wanted to start a business and you retire in your mid fifties uh, or early fifties and all of your money is in a qualified account, you're likely going to be subject to penalties, right? So you don't have flexibility. But then the other thing this does is it, you know, it creates a source of funds for living expenses so you can take advantage of these Roth conversions, right? If all of your money is in qualified accounts and you retire and that's the only source of funds, you're already going to fill up those lower income brackets by funding your living expenses if you don't have another bucket to pull from, right? So in that scenario, it's it's a little less, com- you know, Roth conversions may become a little less compelling, because you're already filling up those low to no income brackets with expenses for living. That's right. This paper explicitly made a huge delineation. And it said that if you have assets to, to pay for living expenses that do not trigger income tax, so that effectively means that you're not going to have any um, income tax. And that allows you to do Roth conversions at the 0% bracket, standard deduction, at the 10%, 12% bracket, and so on. And the author clearly stated, I mean, that is just very different than other Roth conversions. I mean, almost as if he he writes this paper to challenge Roth conversions and, and say that a lot of advisors are selling them when they shouldn't. But then he, I mean, he pretty strongly endorsed that idea. So having a source, I would, I would just put it this way, having a source of money that you can live off of so that you are not using your pre-tax IRA for living expenses, that is a big deal in tax planning. Jared, what's the, do you know what the average tax rate on a, if you convert $100,000 from pre-tax IRA to Roth IRA, what's the average tax rate on a $100,000 conversion? What types of taxpayers? Married filing jointly? Married filing joint. Yeah, I would say 8 to 10%. That's right. 8%. Uh, 8% is a pretty good estimate. Maybe slightly above 8. If you convert 350000 and you have assets to live off of, so you're not triggering any other income. You can convert 350,000 and your average tax rate is about 19%. And so that's why it's so powerful to be able to have a pool of assets that you can live off of. And now that would be your cash, your savings account, 
your brokerage accounts because remember, capital gains are taxed at a different tax rate. So you could convert, let's say you have 6 million in IRA accounts, you could convert 350,000 a year and then you still have another 150,000 in capital gains that can be harvested at the 15% plus net investment income, 3.8% tax rate. So that's still a capital gains rate under 20% that could produce all of your living expenses. I'm gonna bring up a controversial topic. I think it's worth considering. Now, now this only makes sense if your IRA assets are three, four, five million or above. If that's the situation you find yourself in with, with significant IRA pre-tax assets and you don't have a lot of brokerage assets to live off of, it is worth considering the equity in your home. And I realize that that's kind of a big statement and, and that, that needs to be mapped out certainly with an advisor and you need to understand all of the ramifications there. But uh, when you get Roth conversions right, it can be a seven-figure difference. Uh, I mean, this is a big, big deal. And so having some non-retirement assets to live off of can go a long, long ways in, into truly doing some great tax planning. I love it. Coming in with the hot take, tackling the bedrock of retirement planning, just you know, having no mortgage, being debt-free. Uh, I, I love it. I love it. So let's talk about another reason why, or not, like another shortcoming of this piece. I think it discounted legacy planning, right? And we could talk about there's a few reasons why that is, but you know, his remember his target audience is people trying to decumulate a portfolio and live off it over their lifetime. And so a lot of oil and gas retirees with three to 10 million, they lower cost of living, no debt, pretty frugal. So, you know, simple four, 4% rule says, hey, you'll definitely, assuming the portfolio is invested reasonably, you shouldn't outlive your retirement assets, right? So that, that box is really checked. But where things can get, tax consequences can get really large is from a legacy perspective, right? And we mean two things by that, talking about Justin, you want to talk about the SECURE Act and how that could potentially jeopardize things. Yep. So SECURE Act, if uh, you have two children and you pass away, let's say with $4 million in an IRA, uh, that goes to your two children. They have to liquidate the entire account within 10 years. So that would effectively mean that, let's say they both get $2 million out of your $4 million IRA. They have to liquidate that, and that is going to be taxed as income on top of their other income. And so, you know, your financial plan needs to account for how many children do you have? What type of career trajectories are your children on? If we're working with a family that has a lot of pre-tax assets and they have one or two children that are, you know, in careers that are going to make substantial incomes, well, then we need to think through that because yes, you may not face 35% tax rates at age 72, but what if one spouse passes away? Well, then your tax is a single taxpayer and your taxes go way up. What if you both pass away and your children inherit that account and they have to liquidate the entire thing within 10 years and they already make 200, 300,000 on their own? That's a great point, right? And like, it, it's interesting because one of the, like from a legacy planning perspective, right? Like if, if you die earlier than anticipated, on paper, the Roth conversion would have made sense because the tax growth. But on the other hand, it's reduced the future liability of tax, you know, RMD liability of the surviving spouse, right? Because in that scenario we gave where, you know, it took a $4.1 million IRA to create an RMD that hit, that, that put you into the 24% bracket. If one spouse dies early, that new spouse, you know, still has the same RMD number, 
but then their tax rate just got cut in half, right? So then that income rate kicks in at you know roughly half that amount of income, the 24% bracket. So all of a sudden you're dealing with substantially larger numbers. So while you lose the exa- you lose the advantage of the tax-free growth, it's really you know kind of positioned assets in a way where the RMDs can get out of control for a single taxpayer with one large RMD and subject to single taxpayer tax brackets. Yeah. And I, you know, if we're discussing what are parts of this research that we didn't necessarily agree with, Jared, what you just said is critical. And I would, I want to phrase it in a different way. I want to, I want to just make a, a statement. Every dollar in your IRA will be subject to income tax, period. Remember that every dollar in your IRA is going to be subject to income tax. So that means that sometimes tax planning is purely for you. And, you know, quick note, if you don't have children, if you're not, you know, worried at all about a legacy, then that needs to be taken into account. And your financial planner needs to understand that. And maybe Roth conversions do need to be dialed down a little bit. But even if you don't care whether your children get a huge inheritance or a small inheritance, I've never met someone that really wants to leave a tip to the IRS instead of having that money go to their children. I have never had that happen. And so every dollar going to be taxed. So you have to go into your financial plan and your estate plan and your retirement income plan, understanding that this entire bucket, whether you pay it while you're living or not, the entire bucket's going to be taxed. And so your your tax plan needs to uh, accommodate for that. Yeah, that's so good. And yeah, for, from a legacy planning perspective, right? It it just it makes sense. And when you begin to factor that into the equation, it becomes less less clear, right? And one of, one of the things that we agree with is also one of the things we disagree with, right? If if there's tax rate neutrality, right? Like if you're converting money at the same tax rate today as you are in the future, the payoff isn't for decades, right? But that's what good legacy planning is, right? It's planning seeds today that when compounding or taken into consideration, optimize a future scenario. A good financial planner where you you have substantial assets is trying to plan for and create multi-generational wealth, right? And the way they do that is by you know, taking a look back and looking at your lifetime tax rate. So even if the payoff isn't, but you know, for decades, we still think it's it's a worthwhile endeavor, assuming that the tax rates are equal. That's right. Um, yeah, that idea of, you know, throwing an acorn over a fence um, uh, in order to, you know, relocate and think about tax planning. We're, we're, we're trying to plant seeds that, that from a tax perspective, a state plan, your investment plan, we're trying to plant seeds that are going to really bear fruit in the decades to come. But I, I want to make a quick note that I also, Jared, just like you said, we kind of agree with that thought too, that people need to be very cautious and they need to understand that some conversions are going to pay off fast. When there's huge tax rate arbitrage, some conversions will be a no-brainer home run fast. Other conversions may take a long time. So it's important to really weigh the cost because uh, it is a voluntary tax payment to do a conversion. You are voluntarily paying tax today. So you need to understand why am I doing it? How much should I do? What's the payoff? And when is that payoff really going to hit the break even? I mean, so all those things need to be considered. Jared, should we bring up the number one thing we disagree with? I'm curious what you think the number one thing is. I wonder if we have the same number one thing. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Number one thing that I disagreed with in this white paper was uh, the author called it, he actually used the term, it was a bait and switch to uh, essentially use asset location. 
So what he's saying is that to properly measure a Roth conversion, you need to compare the same investments across all accounts. So he's saying it is not fair to load up the Roth with high growth stocks and then put all of your low return cash or bonds in a pre-tax IRA or the brokerage account in order to make the numbers look good. And I will admit, I think that's a really good frame uh, framework to apply. I don't think the author's way off there uh, that, hey, if a Roth conversion is that powerful of an idea, it should pass that test that every investment's equal across all the different accounts. But Jared, asset location is an incredible advantage of Roth conversions. In fact, and we'll go into details on this, but asset location is a reason why we don't necessarily need to convert as much as you would necessarily think to avoid high tax rates. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And to just briefly summarize, asset location is putting different types of assets in different accounts to increase tax efficiency, right? So if we can get you know, 7% investment return across an entire portfolio. If you put every single fund in every portfolio, the return should be identical, right? If we put higher growing assets because they're tax-free, the growth is tax-free inside a Roth IRA, and that can earn 10%. And in qualified accounts, we have more conservative assets, and those earn 5% for a blended rate of 7%, right? That drastically impacts the projections. And I get what he was trying to accomplish. And hey, this Roth conversion idea should stand alone, right? And for the average American too, Justin, we have to remember they don't have software to manage this, right? To say like, hey, how do I maintain my investment allocation across all these different accounts? You know, so it makes sense unless you have institutional grade software to help monitor this and make sure that, you know, the portfolio is being tactically managed. It's an operational nightmare to try to allocate individual accounts differently, right? But yeah, that that's a great point because, you know, Roth conversions really, if we can accelerate the growth in that account, a dollar of tax-free growth is more valuable than a dollar of growth that's subject to future tax. So, you know, while we get why it was excluded, when you take that into consideration, and I'm sure if, you know, he adjusted the rates of return across different asset account types, you know, this that would probably swing substantially in the favor of Roth conversions. But I get why he left them out. That's right. And the thing to remember about required minimum distributions, they go up over time. So it's not it's not this flat horizontal graph. It's kind of a, a linear going up trajectory. And then somewhere in your mid 80s, it kind of peaks and then it starts going down in assets uh, because your required minimum distribution is huge in your 80s and 90s. So you're taking out a ton of that account. So in your 80s and 90s, the account value probably will go down because your tax bill is going to be huge because you're forced to take a lot of income. So let's talk about why that's a big deal. Uh, let's just say that you're retiring at 60 and you have six or seven million in pre-tax IRAs. And maybe you have another million and a half in brokerage assets, but nothing in Roth. So according to this paper and us, uh, we would certainly entertain the idea of spending the non-retirement assets first. So your living expenses gets, get you, your living expenses come from the non-retirement assets because those do not produce an income taxable event. They may produce capital gains and we can manage that. We can work with that. So you're going to live off those and you're going to do Roth conversions. But you would think if you're 60 and you have six and a half million in a pre-tax IRA, you would think that, gosh, you really need to get a few million in Roth conversions because if you're converting 300,000 per year, well, that the account will probably grow at a greater rate than that over the next 10 years. So you might have six, seven million in a pre-tax IRA, but as you're doing conversions, that account's going to keep growing. So you might think, well, 
do we need to get three, four million in Roth accounts by the time you're 72? And the answer is no, because of asset location. Uh, if we can just get, say, one, one and a half million in the Roth IRA over the next five to seven years, we can start to strategically take away high growth potential assets from the IRA. We can put all of them in the Roth. Uh, so the Roth shouldn't have any bonds or cash or should have very little bonds or cash. And then let's go back to what did I mention two minutes ago about the RMD schedule? RMDs get really high in your 80s and 90s. So as you continue to take RMDs, uh, you're going to continue to invest and strategically locate highest growth potential assets in the Roth so that when you're in your 80s, you've got a much better chance of, of keeping that IRA balance right where it was even back at 72. And, and that thing shouldn't be growing much. And so it kind of helps combat the fact that your RMDs increase. So if you didn't, so the author is saying you shouldn't do asset location to compare a Roth conversion. That's not a fair comparison. And I, I understand the heart of where he's coming from, but at the same time, the fact that we can do asset location is why we're able to do less in Roth conversions and optimize your lifetime tax rate. Yeah, that's exactly right. And like RMDs grow over time, but what's also growing is social security. And if you're a high income earner, a decent portion of social security is taxable, right? So you know, if, if you're not taking a sufficient amount from this account and it's continuing to accumulate over time, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, but inertia being one of the big things that gets in the way of investor behavior and like it just creates suboptimal outcomes, right? Your tax problem, you know, if you're seeing, hey, the 20, I'm in the 24% bracket today. Yeah, but the RMD is only requiring you to take three and a half, 3.8% of the account. Over time, that becomes 10%, 15%, 20% in your later years. So, even though the RMD is manageable now and in your you're in a tax rate that's okay, just by inertia and the account continuing to grow and Social Security continuing to get larger, that doesn't work itself out over time. So continuing to be strategic and opportunistic with those low to no income tax years that the average oil and gas professional might have more of than, than the average person retiring at 65 with only two years before Social Security starts. That's right. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really fun to dive into these and, uh, we are going to link the white paper. I'm guessing that a lot of you don't have a huge desire to read a 40 page, uh, paper, uh, making a negative case for Roth conversions, but if you do, we're going to link it. And, uh, there are some really neat models and illustrations and graphs in this paper that, uh, let, let's definitely highlight the one about RMD, uh, account balances. Uh, but this is a really fascinating topic. And, you know, we're very pro Roth conversion, but it, it's really good to have kind of an opposite take to say, hey, are you sure that this is lowering your lifetime tax rate? Uh, because, again, our goal is not to max up, put as much money in a Roth as possible, uh, because technically you could put your entire balance in the Roth tomorrow if you wanted to. The goal is lower lifetime taxes. Yeah. And build, yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, why we're challenging our logic, just building conviction. Some clients who aren't familiar with Roth conversions aren't super excited to hear we're signing them up for taxes today, right? So just continuing to flesh out why is that the case and why is it worth it? Anytime new research comes along, right? Our, our investment approach, kind of the way we look at it, it's evidence-based, right? Just follow the evidence and what the research says. And as new research becomes available, you know, we're lifetime learners. And as a firm, we want to continue to make sure that what we are doing is always in the best interest of our clients. So if you have any questions or thoughts, shoot us an email podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. 
Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.